in an age where truth is in the eye of the beholder, in an age where meaning is defined by the individual. Ecclesiastes says not so. Truth can be found. Truth can be found and meaning can be found and it is only ever sourced in God. And the second that you take God out of the equation, life stops making sense. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Where Can Meaning Be Found? A nine-part study in Ecclesiastes from Pastor Paul Twiss. His text for this series is chapter one, verses one through 11. This chapter is the introduction to this 11-chapter book. As we begin this series, Pastor Paul joins us for a brief conversation. So Pastor Paul, we're eager to hear why chapter one is such a dreary introduction to this otherwise spirit-inspired book. Hi, Matt. You're right about a depressing introduction where the preacher cries all is vanity and goes downhill from there in his first 11 verses. We will learn why King Solomon decided to begin Ecclesiastes the way he did. Ecclesiastes may be the most contemporary book in all of scripture. It confronts our modern problem of emptiness and hopelessness. Thanks, Pastor Paul. And here we go into part one of our new series, Where Can Meaning Be Found? It's my privilege to have this opportunity to preach a series in the wonderful book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, My plan is not to give a complete exposition of all 12 chapters, but really just to land upon the highlights, as it were, uh, four messages that hopefully give us a feel for the message of the book as a whole. Tonight, we are in the first 11 verses of chapter 1, which are an introduction to the book and indeed a synthesis of the whole message. So Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns." All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be, 
among those who come after. So reads the word of God. Du venant nous, que sommes nous, ou allons-nous? Where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? It's the title of a painting painted by French artist Gauguin around 1897, and it presently hangs in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. The painting, it would seem, is a product of influence, specifically the influence of a particular catechism on Gauguin's life. As a young boy, he was taught this catechism by a Roman Catholic priest, and the catechism asked the questions, where does humanity come from? Where is it going to? And how does humanity proceed? It seems that these questions became somewhat lodged in his mind and formed his way of thinking for the rest of his life. Now, Gauguin, of course, was not the first, nor will he be the last, to ask such fundamental questions concerning humanity's existence. A quick search on the internet reveals hundreds, if not thousands, of different worldviews and philosophies. Atheism, asceticism, egalitarianism, existentialism, communism, Marxism, humanism, postmodernism, minimalism, agnosticism, and thousand more isms. All of which are affirming in some way that they have the answer, either knowingly or unknowingly, to life's most fundamental questions, where can meaning be found? Ecclesiastes is one of, if not the most contemporary books in all of Scripture. Why? Because it speaks to every single worldview. It speaks to every system of thought. It speaks to every philosophy under the sun, of which there are many. We live, of course, in a secular age that is truly secular, the mark of which is the availability of worldviews. Al Mohler, in a recent article, rightly said that Western history can be understood according to three intellectual periods. He said it began with the pre-enlightenment period, wherein it was impossible, humanly speaking, not to believe. Impossible not to believe. I quote, one simply could not explain the world without some appeal to the Bible or to some other form of supernaturalism. No other worldviews were available to members of society other than supernatural worldviews, particularly Christianity in the West. While society had its heretics, there were no atheists among them. Everyone believed in some form of theism, even if it was polytheism. He goes on to say that the second period was, of course, the Enlightenment. All that changed with the Enlightenment and the availability of alternative worldviews. These alternative worldviews made it possible for members of society to reject the supernaturalism of Christianity or other theistic systems for a naturalistic worldview. At this point, it became, humanly speaking, possible not to believe. So moving from impossible not to believe to now possible not to believe. And then, of course, the third period is the one we live in, and that is late modernity. 
and it is now, he says, impossible to believe. That means, especially in terms of intellectual elites and the culture formative sections of society, theism is not an available worldview, if not personally, then at least culturally. If I was to sum all of that up, I would say, over the ages, very gradually, society has stopped presenting Christianity as a valid, viable worldview. Every other worldview is espoused and cherished and celebrated and is presented to the next generation as an option, except for Christianity. The reason being is that Christianity dares to break the social norms. It moves from the is to the ought. It moves from the idea to the obligation. Christianity dares to place responsibility on a person's life. Christianity says there are things which you must do, foremost of which is to fear God. And so the one worldview which actually espouses truth, the one worldview that actually acknowledges the true God, the one worldview that elevates Christ and embraces the gospel is the worldview that is not given any expression or voice today in society. And the next generation are simply taught about it as much as it concerns its invalidity and the fact that it makes no sense. And Ecclesiastes speaks to this issue. Ecclesiastes addresses the society we live in. Ecclesiastes addresses every single worldview. Ecclesiastes addresses every single philosophy, every single desire and pursuit and striving of man, 12 chapters wherein every single worldview is dismantled and deconstructed, and it is shown to be vain. It is the postmodernist nightmare. In an age where truth is in the eye of the beholder, in an age where meaning is defined by the individual, Ecclesiastes says not so. Truth can be found. Truth can be found and meaning can be found and it is only ever sourced in God. And the second that you take God out of the equation, life stops making sense. The second that you remove God from your worldview, everything falls apart and you no longer have any rational explanation for the world around you. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. How is this message communicated? I would say for the most part, inversely. Now, what do I mean by that? Ecclesiastes, for the most part, shows us the futility of life without God in order that you would understand the significance of life with God. Well, Spurgeon says nothing tells us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. This is the message of this text this evening, 11 verses which functions as an introduction to the book, an introduction and a synthesis of the message of the book, answering the question, where can meaning be found? Solomon demonstrates the complete futility of life without God. It is a lesson that we must constantly remind ourselves of. It is a lesson that we must be faithful to communicate to those outside of the church. And it is a lesson that we must be eager to communicate to the next generation. Just this week, I was speaking with somebody about teaching, and I think they rightly said, 
the student only really picks up on a portion of what the teacher says. It's somewhat discouraging, but it's true. Indeed, the student only really picks up on that which they understand and perceive the teacher to be excited about. Our danger would be that we assume that the next generation understands that every other worldview is futile. The danger is that we assume the next generation understands that the gospel is the only valid solution. We must be excited about books like Ecclesiastes and the message that it gives that God has given an answer and meaning can be found and it is only ever in him and the gospel that we find in the scriptures. As we look at our text tonight, because we are beginning this series, it's appropriate that we spend some time in the first two verses. These first two verses really do set us up for a right understanding of the rest of the book. In verse 1, we are told the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, in recent times, there is much, much discussion and debate as to the authorship of the book of Ecclesiastes, but we do well to remember that for 2,000 years of church history, Solomon was affirmed as the author, and I see no reason to depart from that view. I do think Solomon is the author, and as we think about that, we see two things. The first is that he is the son of David. Now, this is important. He is the son of David, which means he is in the line of David, which means he is a Davidic king. What that means is that Solomon has resting upon his shoulders all of the great and wonderful and rich promises of 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. This is an important thing to consider as you read this book. Solomon stands in the line of David, and David received the covenant from God in 2 Samuel 7, a rich and wonderful covenant in which God said clearly, I will now be moving redemptive history forward through this line. In the Davidic covenant, God channels all the promises of the previous covenants onto one man, David, and his descendants. So to be a Davidic king is no small thing. To be a Davidic king means in accordance with your obedience and your relationship with God, God is choosing to move his plan of salvation for the entire universe through you, through this one line. It's a very important and powerful position to be in. Not only that, but as you'll remember, Solomon was the wisest of all men. In 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11, we get the account of Solomon's life. I would encourage you to read that portion of Scripture at some point in our series in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 3, God visits Solomon in a dream. He says, Solomon, ask whatever you want from me. And Solomon, with the utmost humility, says, God, I do not know how to go out or to come in much less how to rule and to reign over a kingdom. Give me, therefore, a heart of wisdom. And God was pleased with that request. So he grants Solomon his request far beyond, I think, what Solomon had imagined, such that the text tells us Solomon had wisdom more than any man after him and any man before him. Solomon is the wisest man in all the land. He looked at life and he got how life works. Now put those two things together. We have a Davidic king who's the wisest man in all the land. That's a potent combination. And it is for that reason, as you carry on reading through Solomon's life, you see a reign of unprecedented success. Solomon led the people in building the temple for the Lord, the completion of which 
we see the God of Israel coming down and dwelling once again with his people. The text tells us that was the end of their wilderness wanderings because God is back dwelling with them again. God is then pleased as Solomon leads the people in prayer, one of the richest prayers we have in all of Scripture. Solomon leads the people in worship and sacrifice, a rare moment of unparalleled unity in the history of Israel. The land flourishes in terms of agriculture and business and trade and foreign investment. The GDP of Israel is off the chart when Solomon is on the throne. And so it does come as some surprise with all of that in mind as we move to verse 2 and we see vanity of vanities. If any man should have found meaning in life, enjoyment and satisfaction in life, it is this man. And yet what we read is this word vanity. It's an important word in the book of Ecclesiastes. It occurs some 38 times. And in order to get the understanding of the force of this word, I want you to picture a cold morning. You know, the kind that we don't get in L.A. I'm not talking about 50. I'm talking about north coast of Scotland, ice on the inside of your windows kind of cold. You step outside, there's no wind, there's no rain. It's just so bitterly cold. And you breathe in. And you breathe out, and you see your breath. But just for a second, because then it's gone. For a second, you see it, and then it's gone. And that's the sense of this word vanity. It connotes a fleetingness, the fleeting nature of life, the temporary nature of all things. Nothing lasts. There is nothing of eternal, ongoing significance. We could go a bit further than that and try and understand this word a little bit more. It's not just simply telling us about the fleeting nature of life, but there is a reason for that. As you read through these 12 chapters closely, what you start to see is many, many connections with the first few chapters of our Bible. The commentators are agreed. Solomon writes this book seemingly trying to point our thinking back to the early chapters of Genesis particularly the fall. It seems like his burden is to give us a theological backdrop of the curse. The book of Ecclesiastes is trying to show us what life looks like outside of the garden. Once mankind dwelt in the garden with God, unending, uninterrupted bliss, where things did have eternal significance. And he transgressed, was banished outside the garden, and now we must all live under the curse. And Solomon is painting for us a portrait of life east of Eden. To give you just one example of one of these connections, the word vanity is the same word in the original as the name Abel. Now Solomon had other words available to him. I think it's no accident that he picks the word that is the same as the name Abel. Genesis chapter 4 the very next chapter after the fall. And we see a man who had so much promise in his life, who had so much going for him, who pleased the Lord in his offerings, and his life is snuffed out by sin. It is true that his, the testimony of his life carries on into the pages of our New Testament, but his physical life on earth, he was murdered by his brother. 
vanity. This is where it has been rightly said that the Psalms teach us how to worship. The Proverbs teach us how to behave. Job teaches us how to suffer. Song of Solomon teaches us how to love. Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live. It is a reality check. Life is not a bed of roses. It is a wake-up call, a slap in the face from 21st century Christian sentimentality. It is a commentary on life outside the garden. And Solomon says, vanity, it is fleeting. Nothing lasts. We live lives of frustration. It is hard. We work by the sweat of our brows. Things aren't what they should be. He's painfully honest in these 12 chapters. We see in our world the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering. And he doesn't just say vanity. It is appropriate that Solomon says vanity of vanities. Now, you know this construction already. Think Song of Songs. What does that mean? That means of all the songs that Solomon wrote, the Song of Songs is the very best one. Think holy of holies. There is holy space, but there's somewhere that is the most holy space. Think Lord of Lords. He is Lord above every other Lord. Think King of Kings, the King above every other King. Think vanity of vanities. Of all things, this is the most vain. And then he sees fit to say it a second time. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. And then just in case you haven't got the message, he finishes the verse, all is vanity. The question is how do we get from verse 1 to verse 2? If anybody should have found meaning in life, in a fallen world, it should have been Solomon. A successful leader, yes. But as we re-examine his life, we get a picture of a man who drifted. A picture of a man who slowly turned his back on the Lord. As you read that narrative, 1 Kings 1 through 11, there are hints in the text that maybe Solomon is not living a life wherein he fears the Lord, wherein his primary concern is to put God on display to a watching world. I'll just give you one by way of example. At the very end of 1 Kings chapter 6, we are told that Solomon spent seven years building the temple. In the very next verse, the commentator says, and he spent 13 years building his house. Now, he doesn't offer any explanation. He doesn't offer any interpretation. The narrator simply says, Solomon spent seven years building the temple. Next verse, 13 years building his house. He wants the reader to ask the question, what kind of house was this? Or where were his priorities? And there are many more hints as you go through the narrative, all of which are confirmed when you get to 1 Kings chapter 11, and we read, Solomon took many foreign wives for himself. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. At this point in his life, Solomon may have been returning from a life that saw him turn his back on God, despite God's enormous blessings upon him. In Ecclesiastes, he brings his readers to a hopeful ending, with words pointing the way to a meaningful life, fixating us on fearing God and keeping his commandments. 
With that said, how's your life going? If you've been tainted by our culture's godlessness and want to bring meaning back to your life, keep listening to Solomon's journey back to a God who saves us and brings hope to our souls. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you don't have a local church, you're invited to come worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. Listen tomorrow, part two in our new series, Where Can Meaning Be Found? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.